Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us for this special episode. It is some type of special, that is for sure. (laughs) I don't know if you know exactly what you're in for yet. (laughs) Christy's been preparing for this one for a long time. Months and months, actually. (laughs) But she wanted to prepare something special for Canada Day. Yes, July 1st is Canada Day, where we get to celebrate the birth of our country. It's fun. I think all countries have different ways of celebrating, and Melissa and I have celebrated many of Canada Day together with our families. Yes. And we have escaped any firework mishaps. No, and that's even with sometimes Melissa's husband being one of the firefighters (laughs) setting off those said fireworks. (laughs) It actually is a pretty big miracle. (laughs) (laughs) We're just kidding. We love you. No, Melissa's husband is a really good firefighter, and that's probably why we haven't had any firework mishaps. And we hope you guys don't have any mishaps either while you celebrate your Canada Day. But not everybody's going to be celebrating Canada Day. That's true. But a lot of our listeners, just a few days later, will be celebrating 4th of July. So wherever you live, celebrate your country. Yeah, you don't have to wait for the anniversary. That's right. Celebrate it up. Yep. Well, like Melissa said, I have been working on this Canadian case for a long, long time. I don't know if you remember way back telling you like, oh, I'm working on this Canadian case, but I'm not ready to do it yet. I just wasn't mentally prepared to cover it. Well, this is that case. Today, I'm just going to go for it. I cannot emphasize what a dirtbag the man in this case is. He is likely one of Canada's most evil and notorious serial killers. And so I thought I would cover him for our Canada Day episode. Yay, Canada! (laughs) This is going to be another one that gives me nightmares, right? It really honestly might. Oh, no. Because Melissa's a big chicken. What? (laughs) No, honestly, this case terrifies me, too. I've said this before, but Canada may not have a super large number of murderers like some of our neighboring countries, but the ones we do are dirtbags with a capital D. Oh. (laughs) We don't have a lot, but we have some of the most vile ones, I feel like. Mm Mm-hmm. This case was one of the largest, if not the largest, Canadian investigation to ever take place. And I believe it is still the largest Canadian crime scene to date. So I apologize in advance if this episode ends up super long. We are in for a wild ride and have so much to cover. This is another case that could totally be a series. Anyone who crossed this man's path was subject to his vile existence. Just breathing the same Canadian air is too close of a connection to him. The man we're going to discuss brutally murdered 49 women and disposed of their bodies in an especially heinous manner. He was a pig farmer and used this to his advantage. If you haven't figured it out yet, we are going to be discussing the disgusting Robert Picton. Oh, this is a huge case. This really is. Even if you don't know the details of Robert Picton's case, I'm sure, especially if you're Canadian, you've heard the name Robert Picton or Willie Picton. A lot of people know the case by that as well. And he gave pig farmers a really bad rap. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like he probably inspired some horror movies even. So I always look for crime scene photos 
evidence photos, those types of things. And there was a lot of photos with this case. But now as I'm talking about it, those visions are fresh in my mind. Oh, no, that's awful. It is. Have you been sleeping much, Christy? No. (laughs) No, I haven't. This case has honestly been all consuming for a lot of weeks for me. I was actually just finishing my proofing of my notes as Melissa walked in my door. Like, I need extra time. (laughs) That's because there's just so much information on it to cover. It was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of information to go through. So shall we get started? Yeah, let's get into it. Okay. Robert William Picton was born in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, or BC, Canada, on October 24th, 1949, into a family of pig farmers. He was called Robbie as a wee child, but then became known mainly as Willie. So sometimes you'll hear of Willie Picton, but that is, in fact, Robert Picton. Robert's father was Leonard Picton. He was born in England, but his family immigrated to Canada when he was a young boy. They bought a large amount of land in BC and started pig farming. Leonard was known for not having a lot of initiative and reportedly grew abusive to his family. However, every farmer I have ever met works extremely hard day in and day out. Yeah, that's hard to believe for a farmer. Yeah, I was a little suspicious when I read that. You don't make much of a living if you're not a hard worker as a farmer. Right, and they are successful farmers. Mm. So we'll take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Robert's mother, Helen Louise, who went by Louise was born in Calgary, Alberta, but grew up near Swift Current, Saskatchewan. Louise would become the one who controlled the family. She was definitely the boss. Oh, well, maybe he was the loafer and she was the one that was the hard worker. Maybe. She was tough as nails, this one. Does he have mommy issues? No, I wouldn't say he has mommy issues. No, he was a mommy's boy, though. Okay. Yeah. Robert had an older sister named Linda and a younger brother named David who went by Dave. They were just a year apart each. When Robert was born, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck, causing his birth to be quite difficult. His family questioned if this event caused any brain damage in Robert when he was growing up. He wasn't good in school, despite having a really keen memory. He could remember things vividly from age two on. Oh, wow. But did not do well in school. No. Which is unusual. So was it socially he didn't do well in school? Yeah, he does not do well socially. Mm. For sure. And he's reported as not being very intelligent, but his memory was very sharp. Okay. Maybe just that visual memory, right? Robert was much closer to his mom, like I said, a little bit of a mommy's boy, and never really connected with his father. But his father was also physically abusive. Despite the family having money, they lived in squalor conditions. Why? I don't know. But when you look at the photos, it is disgusting, honestly. When he was two, he remembers living in an old chicken coop. They literally lived in an old chicken coop, even though they were making good money. Were they just squandering it away? Was his dad a gambler? Like, where was all their money going? It was all just being saved. Oh. They later inherit a bunch of money. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Did his parents, like, were they raised poor and that's why they were, like, so afraid to spend money? They could have been. I know that they grew up in the farm type life, Mm -hmm. which is waste not, want not. Yeah. You know, that kind of attitude, right? I remember my grandma always saying that to me. Waste not, want not. And the era that they grew up in would have been during the Great Depression. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While living in this old chicken coop, Robert would lift the floorboard to access fresh water from a natural spring that ran under his bed. This was their only source of fresh water. The entire farm was just makeshift buildings with muddy pathways going from one building to another. So when I say they're on a farm, it's not the type of farm you're picturing. 
It's muddy. It's bleak. It's makeshift. It's dirty. It's just barely holding together. It was just pig pens, right? Yeah. At age three, he was helping his dad by driving a truck that was loaded with pigs. What? Yeah. How is a three-year-old even going to hit the gas? He had him steering. I don't know if he had something on the gas, if it was going slow, but he had him steering while the dad was in the back. That's crazy. Right? Robert started to lose control of the truck and ran into a pole to stop it. He didn't know what else to do, so he just ran into the pole. He totaled the truck and pigs went running everywhere. About the incident, he said he got the hell beat out of him for that one. But also said, that's what happens, referring to the beatings like it was a normal part of life. What? Who put the three-year-old in the driver's seat? (laughs) I know. I know. The dad should have got the beating. Unfortunately, when you grow up in a house full of abuse, it is just your normal thing. Yeah. His attitude was kind of like, well, I had that one coming. I totaled the truck. Yeah. Of course I was going to get beat. Makes sense to me. Yeah. When he was four, his mother caught him smoking a cigarette. (gasps) At four. What? Yeah. As punishment, she forced him to smoke a cigar. Oh, that would have made him so sick. It did. He said that cured him of his desire to smoke and never touched a cigarette after that day. Robert later says that his mother said to him that if he was going to be a man, he had to smoke a cigar. He said it made him sicker than a skunk. Yeah, I believe it. I think that was a common thing to do back then. Well, it's funny that you say that because my next line is maybe common punishment for that day. Because my dad had a similar punishment by his father when he was caught smoking with one of his friends for the first time ever. (laughs) He was made to smoke an entire pack to the point of being sick. Mm. It cured my dad. He never smoked another cigarette again. (laughs) He was older than four, but still was a young boy. Four, though. That is so young. Right? Needless to say, Robert and his siblings did not have your average upbringing. Things that would shock your average person was just normal for them. Louise would allow the farm animals to traipse through the house, including chickens and ducks to pigs and cows. There would be manure all over the house and no one would clean it up. The kids would have to feed nearly 200 pigs and clean their pens before school, so they always stank. People would call them piggy. Leonard, the father, didn't mind, but it was hard on the kids. He wasn't the one at school getting called names. Right, but the townspeople called him piggy. I think he wore it more like a badge of honor. He sounds like a character. Not a good thing to be known for, Leonard. No. (laughs) I tell my kids all the time, you do not want to be the stinky kid at school. That's true. (laughs) But unfortunately, they were. They would get to have a bath about once a week. But apparently, you just couldn't get that smell off of them. Robert didn't really have a sense of smell, so bad hygiene never really bothered him. He just never learned to take care of himself that way. Robert struggled in school. He was picked on for being the gross, dirty kid but he also had a hard time with the lessons. In the earlier years, his family was strict about going to school. In grade three, Robert was placed in a class for quote-unquote slow students. Mm. A fellow student said later that she remembers them all picking on the Picton kids. She said the boys talked funny. Robert would talk really fast and high-pitched. He became a loner. What was up with his voice? Why was it so high-pitched? I don't know. Maybe it was a confidence thing. Maybe it was he was nervous. I'm not sure. Hmm. The family would scavenge. Leonard would go through local garbage to find stuff to feed the pigs. The kids did their chores, went to school, and then just ran amok the rest of the time. Robert later admitted that he had a hard life. There is one memory for Robert that was especially traumatizing. When he was 12, he had earned and saved enough of his own money to go to a livestock auction with his parents. 
He set his eyes on a beautiful black and white calf that was only three weeks old. Robert said the calf was, quote, as really pretty as the day is long. It was a nice calf, and I was going to keep the calf for the rest of my life. Robert would rush home every day after school to spend time with his beloved calf until one day he couldn't find her. He remembers frantically searching everywhere. He was told that the calf probably got out by accident. When Robert wouldn't let it go and kept asking how the calf could possibly get out, he was just told to go look inside the barn. As you may have guessed, when Robert ran into the barn, he saw his beloved calf, dead, hanging upside down. Robert was devastated. Mm. He said he didn't speak for three or four days and just locked everyone out of his mind. Later, he said, quote, that really upset me, but that happens. That's life. I mean, we're only here for so long. When your time is over, your time is over. Oh, that sounds ominous, knowing what he goes on to do. <laughs> I know. That happens a few times in this case when he says things. I'm like, ooh, when you look back after knowing what he's done. But I think that's just a natural progression for any farm kid, that they have to learn that farm animals, they have a purpose, right? They're not pets. No, but he had saved his own money. He bought mm -hmm. it. He told everyone, I'm keeping this cow. It's my cow. It probably took him a very long time to save that money. That happens with 4-H every year. <laughs> <laughs> the end of 4-H, that's what every kid is thinking, is that they raised this farm animal as a pet, and now they're going to get slaughtered. <laughs> Right. I don't know. I understand that, but I do see this differently <laughs> because he bought it himself. It was not for 4-H. It was not yeah. for a program. He wasn't fortunate enough for those types of programs. He told his whole family, I'm keeping this forever. The cows were even allowed in the house. So what was the big deal? <laughs> yeah. No one asked him. You know, and afterwards, his mom was like, well, here's some of the money that we'll get for the cow. Yeah. He's like, I don't want the money. I want my cow. Yeah. That wasn't his purpose. He told everyone, I want this beautiful cow for the rest of my life. <laughs> And then to just come home and see it hanging. Yeah, that's true. Robert grows up to be a cold-blooded killer, but you can't help but feel for child Robert. I can't imagine growing up that way. And that's often the case with many of the murders that we cover, is that you can totally feel bad for the childhoods that they had, but you're not feeling sorry for them as adults. Exactly. And this is that type of case where because I have so much disdain for him as an adult and what he does, it's hard to even have some compassion about his childhood, but I still do. Mm. But not to the extent that I do in other cases. Oh, Let's just really? put it that way. Yeah, because he kind of takes this farm mentality and just uses that towards women. Yeah, that's how he was taught, right? He right. valued this cow and he was taught by his parents that actually you just slaughter it. It has other purposes. Right. But it also does show that he could have a connection to another living thing. Oh, that's a good point to make. Yeah. Or can he have another connection after this one goes so poorly? He does. Okay. And I'll tell you about it. But not yet. <laughs> we'll get Come there. Come on, Christy, get to it. It's <laughs> probably the phrase I say the most. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> At age 14 in 1963, Robert's family bought 40 acres of land for $18,000 on the eastern edge of Port Coquitlam. This address... 993 Dominion Avenue would eventually become a place of unspeakable horror. And the biggest murder investigation site. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I googled it and I believe to date it's still the biggest. Unfortunately, it did not take long for their new farmstead to become as repulsive as their last home. Louise locked all the food in cupboards and was the only one with the key. The house didn't have any real furniture in it, just a few filthy items. The counters were covered in dirt and grease. The floor was covered with dirt, slop, and garbage. 
Louise would always wear her dirty rubber boots throughout the house. And like I said, I looked at the crime scene photos and it is so clear that no one cleaned anything ever. However dirty you are imagining it right now, multiply that by a thousand and you might be close. Oh, wow. Robert's sister, Linda, took this opportunity of them moving as her chance to move out. She went to live with relatives in Vancouver, leaving her two younger brothers at the farm. But you can't really blame her. She was only 15. Well, it sounds like it was a good opportunity to go off with relatives. Yeah. And I'm not sure who the relatives were, but... And they weren't that far. Vancouver's not that far. Mm -hmm. And at that time, 15 wasn't a terribly young age to leave home. Exactly. The Pictons focused on their pig and poultry business. And business was booming. They had hundreds and hundreds of animals on their farm. They increased the amount. They would sell meat in a little shop and then keep it frozen at their property for their customers. Ooh, doesn't that just give you awful vibes? Like their house was so disgusting and then they were actually selling meat? I can't imagine their storefront was any cleaner. I don't know if they owned the whole store or if they sold it through the store, but... That's still gross. It is. And because not a lot of people had deep freezes in their homes, they would store the meat too for them. And this storage place became known as the Meat Locker. The business grew so much that they had to hire staff. Louise continued to rule the roost in business and in the home. What's she ruling? She's not telling anybody to clean. No, but if you have, I don't know the exact number, but I think by then they were up to like 700 pigs. I don't know how many cattle they had. They've got chickens. They've got ducks. Like there's a lot to do day in and day out. Yeah. And what's Leonard doing all this They've time? They've got being bossed around. Oh. I'm assuming. Like they said he didn't have initiative. Yeah. So it was probably whatever Louise told him to do. He just went and did. Hmm. And even just keeping track of whose meat is in what locker, how much meat they have. You know, all of that. Yeah. The shop stuff of it. There was probably a lot to do. Just no cleaning. No. Oh. She was too busy doing everything else. But she made enough money she could have hired someone to come in and clean. <laughs> <laughs> Robert and his brother had to work hard on the farm. And they started to miss school to complete their chores. By the age of 15, Robert dropped out of school and was described as extremely awkward around girls. When Robert's brother, David, was 16, he accidentally hit another boy from behind with his truck. He stopped, realized what he had done, and then just took off. He told his mom about the incident. Louise went back to the scene of the crime, saw the boy laying there, drug him off the road, and rolled him into the swampy slough water near the road and went back home. I thought you meant he hit him in a vehicle, but he actually hit his person. Yeah, he was walking along the road and he hit him from behind. That's brutal. Yeah. Hit and run. Yeah, it was totally a hit and run. And then he tells his mom, she goes and looks, sees the kid laying there, doesn't want anyone to see him. So she just drags him to the edge of the road and rolls him into the sluey water. Was he dead? No. Later, police discovered that the boy didn't die from the impact of the truck, but rather drowned in the two feet of dirty water that they found him laying in. (gasps) Oh. So he was alive when Louise found him. Oh, man. David was charged and given probation and a suspended license. What was Louise charged with? Nothing. What? No one knew the role that Robert's mother played until years later. So she was a murderer too? Yeah. And I added this in here, even though this isn't one of Robert's stories, but I wanted to put it in here to give you an idea as to what Robert and his family were like. What mother does that when finding another woman's injured son... And what message did that send to her children? Well, yeah. Robert would have just thought that this is just what you do. This is how you take care of problems. Yeah. That is bizarre. But honestly, mom to mom, 
if your son hit another kid walking and you went there and saw the kid was still alive, would you just throw them in the water in the ditch? No, you would go get help for them. Right. You would be devastated. Mm hmm. You'd be slapping your own kid upside of the head saying, why did you run away? Yeah, exactly. No? Totally. <laughs> Not Louise. She's like, oh, get rid of this problem. We got things to do. We got pigs to feed. That's right. And then to make it worse, David just got a slap on the wrist. Well, because it wasn't really him that killed him. No, but he did start the thing with the hit and run. It's true. <laughs> if he had stopped and put the kid in his truck and drove him to the hospital, would have been a different story too. Mm -hmm. He was 16 and could have made that decision. Dirtbag decision. Yep. Dirtbag family. I tried really hard to find any redeeming qualities. I didn't find too much bad with the sister. That's because she left the home early. Yeah, she had enough sense to get out of there. Aside from their meat and farming business, the Pictons also owned a demolition yard. David would drive truck and work demolition. Robert tried to learn how to be a meat cutter, sometimes butchering up to 24 pigs and cows a day as a butcher's apprentice. Oh, that's quite a bit. I've never butchered an animal, but I feel like 24 in a day would be a lot. In his off time, he developed mechanic skills and would work on various vehicles and machinery. So he's quite the handyman. He is. And it just adds to his greasiness. <laughs> Mechanics aren't greasy, Christy. I can say that because he's a dirtbag murderer. <laughs> no shade to many mechanics out there. But there's a difference between dirty and just that grease that mechanics mm -hmm. have that won't come out of their fingernails or into their skin crevices. Yeah. By 1970, Robert quit his job as an apprentice and worked full-time at the family farm. Reportedly, he was just an average butcher at best. That makes me wonder how many animals you can slaughter in a day. Busy doing a subpar job. Yeah. Right? Despite all this, the neighbors actually described their family as kind, saying that they would help anyone out in need. Yeah. Help them out right to the ditch. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it doesn't reflect on them poorly. Exactly. Before I start to dive into the Pictons' criminal behavior and Robert's adult life, I just wanted to mention that a lot of this information about Robert's early life I got from a book written about him and this case. The book is called On the Farm, well written by Stevie Cameron. If you want more information on this case, I would recommend this book, but be prepared. It's a big one. It's over 700 pages. And when I took it out from our local library, the librarian looked at the book and said, just let us know if you need it longer than the three weeks. <laughs> I'm like, okay, thanks. I wish I could cover everything in the book with you today, but we would need an, an entire podcast series on this case to do that. So again, just go get the book if you want even more information. Robert lost both of his parents within a year of each other. His father died in 1978 and his mother in 1979. Robert felt like his mom did him dirty in the will, which was viewed as a slap in the face for him since they were so close. She instructed that his siblings each get their thirds of the money, but Robert was only to get 20000 of his money and it was to be put in trust under the direction of his brother and sister. Oh, why? I don't know. He was given just the interest on his money until he turned 40. When the <sighs> money would have been released to him, if I did my math right, he would have had to wait like 10 years. And it's not like he was the youngest child. He was the middle child. Yeah, that's really odd. Yeah, and he was mama's boy. And so did she just not think he was responsible? Like, did she always treat him like the baby? Well, she did wonder, like, if he had brain damage, remember, from the umbilical cord. Maybe she wanted to make sure he wasn't going to squander it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe she thought he just wasn't capable of taking care of that much money. Yeah, a lot of kids would blow that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not a kid. He's an adult at this point. But if she thinks he's lower functioning, then maybe it was done as a protective thing. Could have been. 
Hard to say. But that is a very unusual way to handle your will. Yeah, especially when your kids are all just one year apart. They're basically the same age. Like, why would you do that? Yeah, that is odd. And as David and Linda, would you really want to be in charge of your brother's money too? Like that could cause a lot of strife between you. Yeah, that's an awful position to be in. Yeah. David and Linda, however, had zero interest in running the farm. So the three of them started to sell off pieces of land to developers. They eventually sold everything except for about six and a half hectares. They started with 40 acres and were now down to just over 16 acres. If you remember, the Pictons bought this particular land for $18,000. By 1994, it was valued at $7.2 million. Oh, wow. That is a return on your investment for sure. Linda was already married, so David took over the house and Robert lived in a trailer in a very remote area of the property. Mm, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, this just has horror movie vibes. All of it. Robert did get his share of the sale of the land. He ran a smaller scale livestock business and co-owned the salvage company with his brother. These riches gave him the time and freedom to focus on his sick and twisted murdering schemes. That's crazy. Yeah. So they got rid of a lot of the land, got rid of a lot of the animals, but he's still pig farming and still living in squalor conditions despite being millionaires now. And was his brother the same way? Yeah, he lived in filth and stuff too. Huh. And did either one of them ever get married? No, but David had a lot of girlfriends. Okay. He had better luck with the ladies. Because he wasn't as socially awkward. Right. Robert had a few like here and there. He always wanted that relationship and never quite got it. Although I did read in one thing that he was engaged at one point, but I couldn't like back that up. So I didn't put that in there. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes you find little bits of information like that, but I feel like if I can't back that up, I'm not going to add it in. Yeah, I agree. But he might have been. Who knows? David got mixed up with a biker gang called the Hells Angels. They started to illegally run a chop shop out of the salvage yard. He was working demolition most days, so the responsibility of the chop shop fell on Robert. Robert wanted to focus on his pig farming, and so he hired three teenage boys to help in the yard. But soon, the biker gang had the boys stealing cars and working for the chop shop instead. Police would eventually shut this down, but the criminal activity wouldn't stop there. That's not a big surprise when you have a big criminal powerhouse running the shop. Oh, for sure. And they have this remote piece of land. Yeah, it would be the ideal setup for them. Oh, totally. A salvage yard. Yeah, perfect. Their sister Linda started to distance herself from her brothers, and things were strained between the two men. David, like we said, had a way with the ladies and would make fun of Robert. He would comment about how Robert wouldn't wash his sheets for months and would mock him by showing others the horse head that Robert had hanging on his wall. When Robert's pet horse Goldie had to be put down, he said he couldn't bring himself to do it, so he had the vet do it. I was like, um, what? Then he paid a taxidermist to mount his horse head? He did. Just the head was taxidermized and hung on his office wall. It was still hanging there when crime scene photos were eventually taken. The horse's full name was Spring Golden, and Robert talked about her in his arrest interview even. Really? Yeah. He recalled details down to the date and time to the minute that she was born. It made me feel like he wasn't close to many people, but was attached to the horse. And this took me back to his beloved calf when he Mm -hmm. was just a young boy. So again, showing that he can make emotional connections. But only to animals. Well, he does have a few friends too. Okay. Yeah, that we'll talk about. And so obviously not an animal torturer then. No, but he could butcher 24 animals in a day. So he wasn't squeamish about killing animals either. Mm -hmm. That's a job. 
Although Robert would be the one to become a heinous serial killer, his brother was not much better. He was once charged $1,000 for raping a girl. He's just fined? Yeah, he was fined and put on probation. That's crazy. So the Picton boys, both total dirtbags. And I didn't really put this in here, but because David is such a dirtbag as well, and there's so many seedy characters coming in and out of the farm, I don't know if Robert is the only one who ever committed a murder there. To be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if other people had as well. Yeah, it wouldn't be a big surprise. Not his victims. I believe he did murder all of those victims, but I don't feel that there was a lot of good things happening at this farm day in and day out. In 1996, the Picton brothers started the Piggy's Palace Good Times Society. (laughs) If you look into this case, you'll read a lot about Piggy's Palace, which is kind of a great name, really. (laughs) But basically, it was just like a bar. They registered it as a federal charity, allegedly to raise funds for service organizations by holding dances and shows. Really? This was obviously just a ruse. They just wanted a place to throw big parties. So was this their idea or is this more of the Hells Angels idea? Like, hey, do this. No, I believe this was the two brothers. They decided let's start this bar basically out on our property. That's pretty clever. Yeah. They converted an old slaughterhouse into a place to have raging parties and raves. The Piggy Palace became a huge success, bringing in the clientele that might not be as welcomed elsewhere. When I'm sure there was lots of fights going on. Oh, a lot of a lot of things going on. And a perfect place for Robert to find his victims. Yeah, he does find victims here or a way to bring them back to something too, right? Yeah. Like, oh, come to my piggy palace. That's right. But we will talk about where he does find a lot of his victims coming up. Okay. Neighbors complained about the loud music, the rowdiness, and all the drunks and drug use taking place. The Piggy Palace was a popular place for bikers and sex trade workers to hang out. Sometimes close to 2,000 of them every night. It's a good rave. Yeah, 2,000 people, even on a bar. Do you get 2,000 people? I don't know. A lot of these patrons were from Vancouver's downtown east side. We will talk about this place in a bit, but it was one of the most seediest places in BC and possibly even in all of Canada. The millionaire Picton boys were rolling in even more dough as a result of this business adventure. They would bring in sometimes as much as $43,000 in cover charges alone per night. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Do you want to open a piggy's palace with me, Melissa? Yeah. have to find a different name though. We are in the wrong business. (laughs) Right? And this is way back too, making that money, which would be a lot more now. (laughs) The Picton brothers served food at the establishment, including Robert's famous barbecued pork which we will circle back to later (laughs) be prepared robert was trying hard to get a girlfriend during this time he bought new clothes and a toupee because he was almost totally bald on the top and then just had that scraggly hair all around the face at first people said he didn't look too bad but he never washed his hair so the toupee got grungy looking and his attempts were not successful that was gonna be my question did he start showering maybe he started showering he (laughs) didn't have to go to the expense of a toupee he just had to shower right and he even like complained in the interview that i read he complained about like how expensive this toupee was he was like i spent i can't remember it was like over a thousand dollars and he's like i've never even paid more than five bucks for a haircut (laughs) kind of thing (laughs) but no unfortunately he went back to his slimy ways Robert would spend a lot of time searching for pretty girls in the downtown east side to try and take one home with him. 
1997, Robert was arrested for the attempted murder of a sex worker, Sandra Gale Ringwald. And I just wanted to note that this is not her real name. Her name is still protected by a publication ban that took place during the case that we will talk about. But I'll be referring to her as Sandra. Okay. Sandra was a sex worker with a $200 a day drug addiction. Today, that would be more like $320 a day, which is a steep price. Yeah, that's a big habit. That is. On March 10th, 1997, Sandra went to a casino. She enjoyed going, but usually limited her bets to only $20. On this day, Sandra ended up losing $60. She was worried that her pimp boyfriend would beat her when he found out. So she hit the streets to try and find a trick to make up for the lost money. And in hindsight, like when I read things like this, it's just one different, one different choice in your day. Had I not gone to the casino by chance that she's going to meet Robert. Had I won instead of lost. Had right. I, yeah. Yeah. If she had won $60, she probably wouldn't have had to pull a trick that night. That's right. Yep. At around 10 or 11 that night, Robert Pickton pulled up beside her. He asked her how much for a blowjob. She said $40. He told her he wanted to take her to his place in Port Coquitlam. Sandra hesitated and told him she knew of places that were closer that they could go to. Robert offered her $100 if she would go with him and promised he'd bring her back to the city by 1 o'clock a.m. Oh no. She needed to make up the lost money, so she agreed. Sometimes Robert did just hire a sex worker and then bring them back as promised, and it's hard to say why he murdered some and not others. So, do you know, were there very many that he brought back? Well, it sounds like it was a common thing for him to hire a sex worker. Okay. So that is interesting then. Which ones, like, why did he choose some to let go? I'm not sure. Hmm. Just it was noted that he did sometimes. Or maybe it had to do with, because he does escalate his number of murders in the later years. Hmm. So maybe it's when that thrill wears off or... I'm not sure. Or he was still working up the nerve. Maybe. At first, Sandra didn't feel nervous around Robert. He had candy and pop in his truck that he shared with her. When they got to his house, she remembered being repulsed at how dirty the place was. In Robert's room, there was only a sleeping bag on the floor with a big roll of sheet plastic beside it. Uh, run the other way. Yeah, red flag. Robert paid Sandra up front and the two had quick intercourse instead of the originally intended oral sex. She said she wanted him to put on a condom before the oral sex and then he was like well how about this okay and it only was like five minutes well he paid her up front because he's planning on killing her yeah they got dressed and sandra asked to use the bathroom and make a phone call he let her use the bathroom but told her he would stop at a gas station for her to use the phone since women had made long distance calls from his phone in the past i think he said he was going to stop at a husky do you remember husky mm -hmm. gas stations in canada we still have some do we mm -hmm. i haven't seen one in a long time was that a true story that he was trying to avoid the extra charges because he didn't want to spend any money? Or was it that he didn't want a trail leading her back to his house? Ooh, good question. I never thought of that because I thought, no, he was cheap. He's living in squalor, you know. Mm -hmm. He probably didn't want them using the phone. Because I don't feel like Robert is super careful, which makes this even more shocking that he gets away with it for so long. Oh, interesting. Because I'm thinking like, oh, he didn't want her to make a call because then whoever she called would say, she called me at this time. And then they would be able to trace the phone because it would be a landline. Right. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm. Possibly. I just don't know that he was smart enough to think that far ahead. Doesn't sound like it. No. I think he was just being cheap. Mm. Sandra agreed to stop at the gas station instead and asked if she could look up a number in the phone book. Who's she calling? I think it was her pimp boyfriend she was going to call. 
She had her back towards Robert. She could feel him come up behind her. When she turned around suddenly to see what he was doing, he quickly grabbed her left hand. He caressed it and then snapped a handcuff around her wrist. Sandra knew she needed to fight before he could get the handcuff around the other wrist. She punched, kicked, and screamed. Robert hit her back, still hanging onto the handcuff attached to her. Sandra remembered that she had seen a knife on the table earlier. So as they fought, she inched him closer and closer to the table, taking blows along the way. She was able to reach behind her and grab the knife, but not before slicing her palm open. She swung at him with the knife and slashed his cheek, allowing herself to break his hold. This just enraged him. He grabbed a rag to put on his face, and she threw whatever she could at him. She ran to the door, and it was glued shut. Oh, no. So this is so dirty. I think this wasn't his first rodeo. I think he'd glued the door so people couldn't escape. When did he do that? I don't know. I think it was so women couldn't run out on the other end of the trailer. Oh, that's disturbing. Yeah. She also tried to break the glass on it, but it wouldn't break. So she thought it was maybe plexiglass. Mm -hmm. So this was like trapping her like an animal. The only way out was to go past him. Oh, this is the back door, not the door they came in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm thinking a trailer. How many trailers have two doors? There is a front and a back door. So he's in a mobile home, not like an RV. I'm picturing like an RV. No. no. Okay. Yeah. Like a mobile home. Mobile home. Okay. Yeah. Like a trailer park trailer. Gotcha. Yeah. Not a camping trailer. I'm trying to think of when he glued the front door (laughs) after they walked in and I'm like, wow. No. That's why he had to be so quick. Yeah. My guess is someone probably got out that door. So he glued it shut so his future victims couldn't get out of it. That's crazy. That's terrifying to me. She breaks away. She knows he's trying to kill her. She gets to the door thinking she's going to get out and it's glued shut. Imagine that panic. That would be horrifying. Yeah. And then she tries to break the glass and it's plexiglass. It's not going to break. So now are you thinking he's a little bit smarter than you originally thought? Or just adaptive, I guess. I think adaptive. Mm. I think someone got out and then he's like, well, got to fix that. Yeah. He's a problem solver. Yeah. Get out the glue. And how did she know it was glued and not just like nailed shut from the outside? I don't know. It sounds like she was pretty observant. She was high and stuff, but she remembered there being a knife. And maybe being a sex worker, she had to learn to be observant of her surroundings. Yeah, this is probably why she lived through this experience. Right. And as she's trying to open the door, she's probably looking around. Do I unlock it? And probably saw the messy glue all around the edge. Yeah, he's not much of a housekeeper. No. They continued to struggle until Sandra lost consciousness. When she awoke, they were outside by his truck. She still had the knife in her hand and started to stab at him until he got the knife away from her. He fell on top of her, and this time he began to lose consciousness. What? Because she had stabbed him a few times. But why would he carry her out to the truck and not take away her knife? I don't know. Because she was unconscious at that point. I don't think he even thought about the Mm. knife being in her hand. I think at one point we need to do for Patreons... The dumbest criminals. That's true. But I don't know if we can call him the dumbest criminal because of how, what he does do. Yeah, no. But yeah, that would be a good episode. So she still had the knife in her hand when she awoke. So she starts stabbing at him until he got the knife away from her. And she got him a few good times. He fell on top of her as this time it was him who began to lose consciousness. Probably from blood loss from all of the stab wounds that she's inflicting on him. Oh, I'm sure. And I don't think he was used to having someone fight back like that. Sandra was able to get out from under him. She grabbed the knife and ran for her life towards the road. A couple saw her screaming and covered in blood. She was partially naked and her intestines were protruding from her wound. 
Wow. She was still holding fast to the knife. The couple stopped to help her, but not before she got rid of the knife. They called 911 and rushed her to the hospital. Sandra told the couple that if she died, the man in the trailer had done this to her. Doctors were able to operate on Sandra. The cut on her hand was very deep. Her lung had been punctured, and she had those two large cuts in her abdomen. When police found Robert, they also had him rushed to the hospital, and he too had to be treated. One account said that he was actually operated on as well. Those poor medical staff that saved his life. Yeah, in hindsight, finding that out. And that poor couple, like she comes running. Can you imagine a woman half naked and bloody with her intestines starting to protrude from her stomach? No, that would be horrifying. Yeah. So they were like, they mentioned that knife, like, what are you going to do with that knife? Like, we don't want you to hurt us, but we want to help you. And when they said that, she threw the knife in the ditch. Mm. Like, I don't think she even realized that she was still gripping it. She was definitely in fight and flight at that Mm -hmm. time. After surgery, Sandra told the police everything. Robert told a very different story. He blamed the victim, saying she suddenly grabbed the knife and wanted $200 up front and then started stabbing at him. He said he was just protecting himself. They don't buy it, do they? What does Bianca Del Rio say? Baloney. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they say. (laughs) Police believed Sandra and charged Robert with one count of attempted murder on April 8, 1997. Robert was loaded, and so he hired one of Vancouver's best lawyers for $80,000 and was released on bond. Robert had intense rage towards Sandra and was trying to figure out where she lived. And I think this is partially why her name remains redacted. Yeah. Yes. Their court date was set for January 28, 1998. Sadly, Sandra was so afraid of Robert that she never showed up. And as a result, the charges were dropped towards Robert Picton. No way. There wasn't enough evidence to prosecute him without her testimony. Because without her testimony, it's just he said. Yeah. Not even he said, she said. And he had injuries too. Sandra was not this pig farmer's first, nor his last victim. A lot of women from the downtown east side were going missing. Unfortunately, this was just one instance where Robert could have been stopped and wasn't. People started to notice that many women would go missing shortly after attending parties at the Piggy Palace. Many wanted the Piggy Palace to be shut down, and they finally got their wish when the city of Port Coquitlam shut it down in the year 2000. So they shut it down because of the missing people or just for other reasons? Well, they shut it down because the Pictons were unable to provide the proper financial statements to keep their nonprofit status. (laughs) They didn't file their paperwork. That's right. I don't even think they kept track. Well, they had learned from the Hells Angels. (laughs) That's right. The Hells Angels did frequent that bar, but they weren't a nonprofit. No, not at all. Organization. They were not donating their money. So there was no way for them to prove that they were. There was no paperwork to do because they weren't doing anything that they said they were doing. Right. So the city shut them down, took away their nonprofit status. But if you're making that much at night, why wouldn't you just open it as a business? I don't know. Like 43000 a night? Just on cover charges. Yeah. Because remember, they had like 2,000 people sometimes. Like it was often like 1,700 was the average number, but sometimes mm. up to 2,000 people. So why not just open it as a business? Yeah, I don't know, because they already run the pig farm business and the salvage yards, so I don't know. But regardless, it was probably a good thing that it got shut down. As I said earlier, I want to talk briefly about Vancouver's downtown east side. There has been a lot of discussion after this case about the horror and injustices that were taking place there during this time. Unfortunately, I'm not sure much has really changed. If anyone ever asks you, hey, you want to go on a trip to downtown east side in Vancouver? Say no, don't go. 
Between 1978 and 2001, 65 women disappeared from this area. Robert's crime spanned most of those years, 1983 to 2002. It's called Downtown Eastside because it's an area just a few blocks east of Vancouver's Downtown Central Business District. The area spreads multiple blocks, but its center is around the intersection of Main Street and Hastings Street. The Vancouver Sun described this area in 2006 as, quote, four blocks of hell. Oh, wow. Downtown Eastside has disproportionately high levels of poverty, homelessness, drug use, crime, mental illness amongst its residents, and a high number of sex workers. This is a place that you likely wouldn't want to go to during the daylight hours, let alone after dark. It doesn't sound like that's where you're traveling to for vacations. No, you don't go there for a nice picnic in the park. That's for sure. Residents of this area suffer from an alarmingly higher rate of mental illness and drug addiction. And I think you're going to be really interested in these stats because she's my geeky friend and she likes stats. (laughs) I do like stats. (laughs) If I call you geeky, I'm calling me geeky because we both (laughs) like it. In 2013, there was a study done of SRO tenants, which is low income housing. It stands for single room occupancy. It's just basically like a hotel room or maybe a hostel room. But you only rent a small room and share a bathroom. And I believe there's not even a shared kitchen. The study found that 92.5% of these residents had some sort of substance abuse dependency, many with multiple addictions. And remember, these stats are probably worse for the homeless ones in this area. Mm -hmm. 74.4% had mental illness. 47.4% of those mental illnesses included psychosis. A BBC article in 2010 claims that downtown Eastside is, quote, home to one of the worst drug problems in North America. So not just in Canada. But oftentimes all of those problems go hand in hand. So it's not a big surprise that that's the population that they're seeing in that area because it caters to those addictions. Absolutely. It does. Mm -hmm. It is a vicious cycle. Vancouver has an estimated 1,000 sex workers. And according to police, most of them work in downtown Eastside. A study in 2005 found that 52% of sex workers were Indigenous, which is shocking considering that all of Vancouver is only around 2% Indigenous. Oh, that is a shocking number. Right? And of those sex workers, 96% of them reported being sexually abused as children and 81% suffered abuse as a child. Two-thirds of the sex workers in this area report being physically or sexually abused while working. And I don't know if you remember with our Eileen Warnos case, the high number of occurrences of rape and sexual assault amongst sex workers. Well, those ACE scores, they actually mean something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This area is also known as the low track area, meaning sex workers can typically only earn between $5 and $20 per (gasps) date. Oh, no. Yeah. Because sex work and drug addiction go hand in hand, many find it hard to escape the vicious cycle of sex work to afford drugs and drugs to endure the sex work. They also have a hard time finding other jobs due to criminal histories. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense why Robert Pickton would choose this area as his hunting grounds. This case does bring awareness to the lack of urgency that the police can have to find missing sex workers, let alone Indigenous ones. It is so sad that it's so disproportionate. It really is. And when are we going to like open up our eyes to this? This isn't our first case to talk about this either. No. Only 3% of Vancouver's population lives in the downtown east side. So it's a small percentage. 
However, in 2008, it was home to 34.5% of all reported serious assaults and 22.6% of all robberies. My guess is that the number is grossly higher as a lot or maybe even most of sexual assaults never even get reported. No, not at all. One of the challenges with this area for police is that because the area is so transient, disappearances often go unnoticed, sometimes for years. In 1987, the RCMP, or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, constructed a special team to investigate unsolved murders and disappearances of sex workers, but it was almost impossible to make any progress. They disbanded the team in 1989, just two years after it began. I imagine part of the issue is that many residents of this area did not trust the police enough to put themselves at risk for speaking up. This also made it hard for police to realize that there was a serial killer on the loose. Mm -hmm. And you think about that population, they don't have advocates and family members usually that are looking for them anymore. Right. And that's why sometimes they go years without Mm -hmm. being reported. In 1991, during Robert's Spree, the Families of Missing Women and Advocates of Sex Trade Workers started an annual Valentine's Day Remembrance Walk as a memorial to missing and murdered victims. Sex workers had also started to walk in groups and write down license plate numbers of the cars that would pick up other workers. So they were scared. They were starting to work together. It's so disheartening that places like this exist in our homeland as well as other countries. In 2016, a national government inquiry was started to investigate the issue of downtown Eastside and its happenings. But there is a long way to go before this gets better. You got to start somewhere, though. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about what's been happening with that at the end. Robert became familiar with this area because he would make visits to a rendering plant located close by. He would take animal parts that he couldn't use over there to be disposed of. He would then cruise the strip of low-track sex workers and offer them extra money to go back to his farm with him. Once he had them at his farm, he would brutally murder them and dispose of their bodies. It was a plan that worked like a charm for years. In 1978, the RCMP joined the Vancouver Police in creating a missing women's task force. They compiled a list of all missing women that they could from the area. Robert was officially connected to 26 of the missing women spanning just 1995 to 2001. 26 women over six years? Yeah, and that's just what they could connect him to. He later admits to 49, but a lot speculated that there could have been many more. Wow. That's like one every three months. Yeah, that's a lot. That is a lot. And like I said, Robert ultimately admitted to murdering 49 women, but could definitely be responsible for many more than that. As you will find out, it was hard to find evidence to connect Robert to all of his victims. In fact, it was almost overwhelming researching this case because there were so many victims. I had to give a lot of thought as to how I should cover this case. Well, it's so hard with that many victims to actually acknowledge every single one, right, and tell their story. Right. And so hopefully I'll do it some justice. One of the most frustrating parts of this case is that people were suspicious of Robert long before he got caught. Well, if all the sex trade workers were taking out down license plates, did they know to kind of stay away from him? No, not that I read anyways. Maybe a few of them did, but I don't think it was common knowledge. But some people did report Robert to the police to no avail. What did they report? I'll tell (laughs) you. I'll tell you in just a minute. By the mid-90s, Robert began to put less effort into pig farming and concentrated more on killing women. This caused Robert to hire more people to help him run the farm. One of those workers was a man named Bill Hiscox. He went to the police over his concern about what was happening at the farm more than once. 
Bill went to the RCMP in early 1999 and told them that a close friend of Robert's named Lisa Yelds had told Bill that she discovered women's clothing, purses, and papers at the farm that could identify some of the missing women. When police questioned Lisa, she denied it. Why would she deny it? I'll tell you in just a second. (laughs) That's what you keep saying. (laughs) But I will. It's literally in my same paragraph. (laughs) Police were unable to obtain a search warrant because the claim was hearsay without Lisa admitting to what she saw. They needed an eyewitness to the crime or a physical piece of evidence. A side note about Lisa, she hung out and stayed at the farm often. She was possibly the closest thing that Robert had to a best friend. They would sometimes cuddle at night, but their relationship was never sexual. Robert appreciated that she wasn't squeamish and could handle the gore that happened around a slaughterhouse. She was upfront with Robert and would tell him when he stunk too bad and needed a bath or a change of clothes. Lisa recalls that Robert was always generous to her. She saw a side to Robert that no one else got to see. Robert felt like Lisa was the smartest and strongest person he knew. Apparently, at the farm, they would hold regular cockfights. And when the men would get drunk and try to grope all of the women there, Robert protected Lisa and told everyone she was basically off limits. Oh, so he can form attachments then. He can. And basically, yeah, sexually assault anyone else, but leave Lisa alone. Hmm. The fact that a man like this can have pure feelings for a woman is mind-boggling to me, but I would say suggest that he isn't a sociopath. Lisa was a true crime buff and later said that she could see similarities between her beloved friend and the sickening serial killer Ed Gein, who is the nipple belt guy if anyone needs reminding. We haven't covered him yet, but we might. If she was seeing signs, why wasn't she being up front with the police? Well, this is what she said. She said that this made her uneasy, but, quote, I always had this thought at the back of my mind that Willie could be a serial killer, but I was never afraid of him myself. I knew he would never hurt me. She never told anybody about her thoughts at the time. She thought everyone would just think she was crazy. Huh. I wonder if it's because she was so strong-willed and, you know, she didn't mind the blood and the guts and whatever gore if it was her that reminded him of his mother. Probably, actually. That's really good insight. Yeah, and that's why he protected her. Yeah, and she was bossy. Mm -hmm. She went, you stink, you need a shower, change your clothes, Robert. Yeah, and would tell him what to do. Yeah. She would take over that kind of mothering role. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I never really made that connection, but I totally agree. And that's why it was so platonic, too. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Going back to Bill, he described the farm as creepy. A creepy looking place that was protected by a 600 pound wild boar. They are quite aggressive. (laughs) And this one definitely was. The boar was allowed to roam free with the dogs on the property and would chase and try to bite you. He said Robert was a quiet guy, one who it was hard to strike up a conversation with. He said Robert just focused on women and had little interest talking to other men. He also said Robert displayed bizarre behavior that could not be blamed on substance abuse. Well, no, that's just his social inaptness, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure he felt very inferior around other men. Mm -hmm. For the span of three years, Bill watched as women would come to the farm and then he would read about those same women later in the paper being missing. Bill went to the detectives and told them that Robert, quote, frequented the downtown area all the time for girls. Eventually, the police would search the farm on three different occasions but came up empty-handed. They put Robert and his brother on a list of persons of interest but never conducted any surveillance on the farm, despite the number of missing women continuing to grow. Hmm. We're going to look at a lot of mistakes that the police actually made in this case. Yeah, that's interesting. 
I guess maybe they just didn't feel like they had enough evidence to conduct surveillance. Possibly. We'll look at a few of the reasons. A lot of people feel like it was because it was sex workers and predominantly indigenous sex workers that were going missing that they weren't willing to put the resources into this case. Mm, That's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I can't say that that is what it was, but... But either way, it makes you think how many lives were lost. They had indication that something evil was going on and they didn't follow up properly. Right. It sounds like. You're right. And this isn't the only person who comes to the police. Later that same spring, a woman named Lynn Ellingson was at the Picton farm. When she walked into the slaughterhouse, she saw a woman's body hanging inside. This was reported by an informant. And when police investigated, Lynn denied what she had seen. Why did she deny it? Because she was scared. So again, they couldn't move forward exploring this claim. Because it's hearsay. Yeah. Lynn would later admit to what she saw. She said she hadn't told the truth at first because she was fearful of Robert, and she depended on him at the time to support her drug habit. And it did seem like Robert was surrounded by more than one friend who used him for drugs. Because he had an inn. Yeah. He didn't do them himself, but he had all this money and could buy drugs for people. In 1998, police received a call on their tip line stating that Robert needed to be investigated for the missing women cases. One of the officers working for the department at the time said he wanted to open an investigation, but couldn't get the police resources to do so. They shut it down. They're like, no. A year later, in 1999, police received a tip saying that there was a freezer at the Picton farm that was filled with human flesh. Police interviewed Robert and searched the farm, but once again came up empty-handed. There just seems to be so many opportunities for him to get caught. Yeah. And I thought they could not have been doing thorough searches at that farm. Or was he tipped off and knew how to get rid of everything? We'll find out later that there was a lot of different freezers. Mm -hmm. So he probably just took him to a freezer that he knew was clean. Yeah, because they wouldn't have an inventory of how many freezers he had on his property. Right, and it's a huge area. Mm -hmm. When Robert was first arrested for the attempted murder charge in 1977, the clothes and rubber boots that Robert was wearing that night were confiscated but left in a storage locker for seven years before being tested for DNA evidence. And let me guess, there was none left. No, there was. Oh. Because in 2004, they found DNA evidence belonging to two of Robert's victims. So this is seven more years of killing where they had this DNA evidence of missing women on his clothing. And they never tested it. They never tested it until he got arrested and all this came to light. And then they're like, oh, wait, we've had that evidence in our storage locker since 1997. It's 2004. Maybe we should test it. Why would they never test it? Good question. Oh, I love our Canadian police, but this case shows so many flaws that were happening at that time and how this case might have been solved so many years earlier and could have prevented so many additional deaths from occurring. That's mind boggling. That shoddy work, really. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have just been left there. It's not even that it was just waiting to be tested and it took that long until it came time to be tested. Mm -hmm. It was like a smoking gun sitting right in their storage locker that whole time. That is crazy. Yep. Because it's almost impossible to talk you through all 49 murders, I thought we'd start with his arrest and work backwards as much as we can. I want to name as many of the victims as I can. We don't even know all 49. He was only charged with 26. But I feel like the women who fell prey to such a despicable monster deserves to be at least mentioned by name. So I'll do this before we get into the nitty gritty of the evidence. Yeah, by naming them, you're acknowledging their stories. Yeah, these were real women. These were real people. These were somebody's daughter, sister, friend, Mm -hmm. mother. And they deserve to be named. They do. 
On February 6, 2002, police came once again to search the Picton property under a search warrant for illegal firearms. Both Robert and his brother David were arrested. Because of the things they found during this search, the police were able to get a second search warrant issued as part of the BC Missing Women's Investigation. But I wanted to point out that different search warrants allow search of different things in Canada. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's the same everywhere. An example would be you getting a search warrant just to search technology-related items or a different warrant to obtain DNA. And I'm not sure if that's in every country. Do some countries just have one warrant that you can do anything? Yeah, I don't know. And I think there are some broad-spectrum warrants. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of paperwork involved sometimes. Red tape to get through. Yeah, most warrants are very specific. Yeah. But the illegal firearm warrant got them the other warrant that they needed. This time, police found items that belonged to some of the missing women. The next day, they charged Robert with a weapons offense. However, both Robert and David were eventually released. This time, they put Robert under surveillance. They weren't able to charge him quite yet with murder. Thankfully, just a few weeks later, on February 22nd, police were able to pick up Robert again. This time, he was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. I found the arrest transcript. It's 252 pages long. Robert just casually talks to the officer. He reminisces about his family and past, discusses pig farming, and even is relaxed enough to yawn throughout their conversation and talk about idle things like foods he doesn't like. When shown photos of some of the victims, Robert would say things like, oh, she's pretty, and maybe I saw her in Vancouver once. At one point, he asks, quote, which ones am I supposed to be charged for? For murder, if you don't mind me asking. Which ones? Yeah. So he's acting like he doesn't know them. And he's like, oh, by the way, which which two am I being charged with? Because they were showing him so many multiple ones. Yeah. Hoping that he would probably identify another one that they didn't have. Right. And uh, there was probably lots it, that he had murdered. Yeah. And he's like, well, which ones are you pinning on me right now? Because there's many. And they don't know that yet. They think it's just the two right now. To start out with. All I can say after reading this interview is that the officers who conducted this interview each deserve a medal for being able to spend that much time chatting up such a douche canoe dirtbag. One of the murder counts that Robert was first charged with was for the death of Serena Abbotsway. The other count was for Mona Wilson. Serena was 29 years old. She disappeared in August of 2001 and had been reported missing by her foster mother. Mona was 26. She went to see her doctor during the day on November 30th, 2001, and was reported missing by that night. On April 2nd, Robert was charged with the murders of Jacqueline McDonnell, Diane Rock, and Heather Bottomley. Jacqueline was 22 years old and went missing in January of 1999. Diane was 34. She was last seen on October 19th, 2001, but wasn't reported missing until December 13th that same year. Heather was 27. She was last seen on April 17, 2001, and was reported missing that same day. A week later, on April 9th, Robert was charged with Andrea Josbury's death, followed next with the death of Brenda Wolfe. Andrea was last seen in June of 2001. She was only 22 years old. That's so young. So young. I know that's like around my daughter's ages. Well, she should have had so much more life to live. Exactly. All of them, really. Brenda was 32. She was last seen February 1999, but wasn't reported missing for over a year on April 25th, 2000. It would take five more months for more murder charges to be laid. On September 20th, Robert was charged with killing Georgina Pappin, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, and Jennifer Firminger. Georgina went missing in January 1999, but wasn't reported missing for almost two years in March 2001. 
Patricia went missing in March 2001. Helen was last seen August 1997. And Jennifer was last seen in 1999. We don't even have a month for her. Mm. Tanya Hulk, Sherry Irving, Inga Hall, and Heather Chinnick were added to the list on October 3rd. Tanya was 23 and last seen October 1996. Sherry was 24 and went missing in 1997. Inga was 46 and disappeared in February 1998. Heather was 30 and vanished April 2001. The last ones that he would officially be charged with were on May 26, 2005, three years after the first charges. And does he confess to any of these? No, no, he doesn't. Wow. So this is just all physical evidence that they're finding at the farm then? Yeah. So they've been searching the farm now for three whole years and they're still adding charges on. It's just so surreal how many there are. It's true. And we still have just these last few names to go. These names included Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Kosky, Sarah DeVries, Cynthia Felix, Angela Jardin, Wendy Crawford, Diana Melnick, and one Jane Doe. And I apologize if I got any of anybody's names wrong. Kara was nicknamed Nikki Trimble. She was 25 and vanished in 1996, but wasn't reported until October 2002. Andrea was last seen March 1997. Deborah went missing in December of 2000. Marnie was last seen August 1997, but reported in December of that same year. Tiffany vanished December 1999. Carrie in January 1998. Sarah was April 1998. Cynthia was in December 1997. Angela was last seen on November 20th, 1998, between 3.30 and 4 o'clock p.m. at Oppenheimer Park at a rally in the downtown east side. Wendy went missing in December 1999. Diana was last seen in December 1995. The charge for the Jane Doe was later dropped on March 2nd, 2006. The detailed reasons for this cannot be reported in Canada because there was a publication ban, like I mentioned earlier, at this stage of the trial. With Jane Doe being dropped, the number of charges was 26. He was implicated, but not officially charged in more cases. Did they ever say the reason why the publication ban is there? I think just it was so overwhelming and it was such a big case. I just don't think they wanted any information getting out that shouldn't be. Mm. I'm thinking maybe they're protecting any biased opinions for future evidence that they might find. For sure. And I don't think they wanted to sway the public's opinion and they have to pick jury members out Mm -hmm. of these residents too. Yep. The investigation of the Picton farm murders would be and still is the largest investigation of any serial killer in Canadian history. Like I said, it was the largest crime scene, six and a half hectares of land to be processed. This is the reason why all these charges weren't laid at once. They spent years finding body parts and DNA all over the farm. At the time, it was also the most expensive investigation to ever take place. According to CTV News, the total cost was upwards of $102 million. Wow. And I didn't actually convert that to what that is today, but that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. But you think about how much manpower you would need to cover that much land over that length of time. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. I will talk Mm -hmm. about what they actually had to do for this investigation. And I couldn't even include it all. It was a huge investigation. Yeah. But if it ends them up behind bars, I guess it's money well spent. Or they find peace for one of the families that has a missing child out there. Exactly. Yeah. Money well spent. 
Kim Bolin from the Vancouver Sun said, quote, The excavation and search for human remains at the farm resembles the massive undertaking at Ground Zero after the World Trade Center disaster. That's something to compare it to. I was actually really shocked when I first read that. But just the undertaking and how many years and like you said, the amount of people and equipment and it was huge. Yeah, it seems like a lofty claim. Mm -hmm. I don't think she means that it was the same part of disaster, but she says the excavation of it and the search for human remains resembled that. So the equipment that they had to use, the time they had to put in, all of those things. The amount of people, all of that. Robert Pickton's trial wouldn't even start until January 30th, 2006, four years after being arrested. His trial took place in New Westminster, B.C. Robert pled not guilty to the 27 charges of first-degree murder in the Supreme Court of British Columbia. This was when Jane Doe was included in the charge. That's why it's 27 that he pleads not guilty to. And had they finished the excavation and the investigation on the farm by this time that the trial was starting or was it still going on? It was still going on. Wow. And it actually doesn't even end up starting on that date. It still gets pushed back. Part of that is because the voir dire phase took almost a year to complete. This is where they're picking the jury and deciding what evidence would be admitted for the jury to see. So Mm -hmm. that took almost a year. It was during this time as well that the Jane Doe charge was dropped. Justice Williams decided to split the charges on August 9th. He split the victims into one group of six and another group with the remaining 20. The judge felt that trying all 26 charges at the same time would put an unreasonable burden on the jury as it would likely last at least two years if they did so. Oh, that would be a huge time to serve as a jury member. Yeah. And when you try that many people, how can you not have reasonable doubt about one of them? And so if you're trying that conviction to all of them at once. Next thing I was going to say is that there would also be a significant chance of the trial ending in a mistrial, according to the judge. Yeah. If he had all 26. The judge carefully picked which six victims to try Robert for. He said they had, quote, materially different evidence for those six counts than they did for the other 20. However, the publication ban was still in effect at this time, so not all the reasons may be known about this decision. Hmm. After all of this, the jury trial finally started on January 22, 2007. For this trial, Robert was tried for the gruesome murders of Serena Abbotsway, Mona Wilson, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolfe, Marnie Frey, and Georgina Pappen. The media ban was now finally lifted and Canadians were finding out the disturbing details of what was happening in their most Western province. Because now they have their jury, they don't have to worry about tainting the jury pool. Right. So are you ready for some of the disturbing evidence that the Vancouver police and the RCMP found at the Picton farm? We are going to go through a lot of the gruesome details because this is their story. This is what happened. This will definitely help to shed light on why the investigation took so many years. And this would finally be the police's time to redeem themselves as best they could. However, this part of the case is extremely graphic, and we don't often give you guys warnings, but you might want one this time. So be warned. Police started by taking aerial photos of the farm, and then had to set up a safe zone where technicians could suit up, but also those involved could have meetings and compile notes without contamination of the crime scene. All the searchers were highly trained forensic experts from the ERU, which is the Evidence Recovery Unit, of the RCMP's identification section, or they were scientists on loan from the biology section of the Vancouver Forensics Laboratory. 
And they were taking aerials to identify new vegetation growth, right? Well, I think they just wanted an aerial photo of the whole place before mm. the people got in there and started disturbing things. Because what if this barrel is moved over here? Where right. was it originally? I felt like they did really good police work starting now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They started looking in Robert's personal trailer. They divided the scene by rooms and then carefully sectioned each of those rooms into smaller sections. Because it was filthy, remember? Mm -hmm. It's not your regular house that you're walking into and evidence is really obvious. They began looking for any evidence that would suggest foul play. By the end of the first month, they had already collected an obscene amount of blood and DNA evidence from Robert's trailer alone. But they had barely scratched the surface. And there is just no way for me to mention it all. They found Jacqueline McDonald's blood on handcuffs in Robert's bedroom, Heather Bottomley's blood on his mattress, as well as blood and clumps of Diane Rock's hair in the trailer. Ugh. There were eventually 12 freezers discovered on the property. These are the freezers that they had in their meat locker before. Mm -hmm. The very first freezer they opened had a bunch of frosted, wrapped up meat in it. It also had some frozen buckets. When officers shone their light into the buckets, they realized that they contained human heads and half of human heads. What? Mm -hmm. Upon further inspection, they discovered that the half head had been cut vertically and inside the cranial cavity, there were two hands and under the hands were two feet. What? Honestly. How do you even fit hands and feet inside half a cranium? I don't know. Wow. Can you imagine stumbling across that? No. And just buckets of heads. Yeah, frozen. And it was all packed quite meticulously inside the bucket. Like it was very neat and orderly how it was all put in there. After carefully thawing these buckets back at the lab, they found more chunks of body pieces and some teeth along with some still lodged bullets. Oh, so he shot them. Some of them. Okay. A lot of them he shoots. These women in the buckets were identified as Serena Abbotsway and Andrea Josbury. Checking the freezers along with most of the farm turned out to be tedious and time-consuming. This particular freezer had piles and piles of junk stacked up on top of it. Each single item had to be removed one at a time, photographed, inspected, and documented. So what a nightmare this would have been. I can't imagine collecting evidence in what sounds like a hoarder's house. It looks like a hoarder's house. Wow. And it's just disgusting. Blood, bones, body parts, hair, teeth, flesh, skin, and nails would continue to be found around the farm, as well as personal items belonging to many of the victims. And can you imagine spending years every day finding body pieces? No, I can't. Or something related to some other victim. Yeah. Like they would just keep going and going. It reminds me of the investigation that was done for the narco-Satanists. Yeah. Where they just kept digging up more and more bodies. Yeah, it's absurd. It's insane, really. It's just unfathomable. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think how long you usually would spend at a crime scene as a forensic investigator, comparatively. Yeah, it's wild. Brenda Wolf was identified as a victim when her jaw was found in the piggery on the property with teeth still intact. They also found her leather jacket and two lipsticks inside a closet in Robert's trailer. How did they know they were her lipsticks? Probably DNA. Hmm. Or maybe they were in her jacket. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. The tiniest bone fragment was found in manure that helped police identify Wendy Crawford. Mm. And this is where the feeding of the pigs comes in, isn't it? It's going to be. Carol Hooper and Randy Hunt were the two RCMP officers that headed up managing the pig farm crime scene. 
This place was a forensic nightmare. The area was huge, dirty, and full of junk, not to mention full of animals when they first arrived. Mm-hmm. Tons of equipment had to be brought to the farm, including, but certainly not limited to, mobile labs, refrigerated trucks, and large excavators. They also had to have things like electricity, sewer, phones, and water run to the site, because that wouldn't go to every part of the farm. Mm-hmm. When the human skulls and bones were found in the buckets, everyone involved knew they were in for quite a ride. They knew that the soil that was everywhere would need to be carefully inspected, all the way down to undisturbed dirt. They also knew that they needed a top forensic scientist to assist them. This is not your average job. The scale of this investigation is unreal. It's wild. It's like Melissa's going to be interested in this investigation part. There were not many forensic scientists in Canada at the time. Thankfully, they were able to have Tracy Rogers come to their aid. She had a master's as well as a doctorate and had been following the case closely. She was a specialist in human bone and crime scene analysis and was teaching at the University of Toronto. Tracy trained her students with actual in-the-field work, so she had the tops of the classes come to help. Dozens of students eagerly worked 12-hour shifts. And I thought, how brilliant, because there's not that many. She's like, I've got all these super talented, brilliant students. And what an education for them. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. They would have learned really quick if this is what they wanted to pursue or not. And a little bonus fact, Tracy had previously been working on the reconstruction of the severed Jane Doe skull long before joining the team. Oh. So she had already been following it closely, was trying to reconstruct this skull for them, and then she heard about the case, and I believe she actually offered her services, and they jumped all over it. Which says a lot about her, because that's a hard case to work. You know what you're walking into at that point. It's not like they've just found something. Yeah, totally. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think she realized that there's not going to be enough help. But if I come and bring my students with me, and it was quite the process to get these students to be able to come. It was not a quick thing. No, because they wouldn't be certified or qualified yet. The supervised forensic students used two 15 meter or 50 foot flat conveyor belts, as well as soil sifters to look for remains. They sifted through 383,000 cubic yards of soil, which is hard to even fathom. Yeah. And searched. Like it would go on the conveyor belt, it would shake it out, they would find stuff, and then they would hand sift the rest of the stuff that fell through. Or they had soil sifters that would do that. One of their search challenges were animal bone pits. Many animal farmers dig holes to bury animal bones. They found over 30 of these pits at the Picton farm. I actually read it was closer to 40. Well, they had a lot of animals, so it they makes did. sense. Yeah. yeah. But these can also be dangerous because they can carry a lot of disease, especially ones containing chickens. They did find some human bones tossed in with the animal bones in some of these pits. And one pit contained human bones only. He had a whole pit just for humans? One of them did, yeah. And then, like, I know another one of them I read was all animal bones, and then, like, one human vertebrae was thrown in there. Just for a dash of good measure. Possibly. Or maybe got in there by accident. That's random. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I found this one. Ooh, so where did this one come from? I'll just throw it in with this bone pit. This next part is gruesome to think about, but there was evidence that a wood chipper was also used to aid in body disposal. What? A wood chipper. Oh, my goodness. Is that not what nightmares are made of? Mm -hmm. Quite honestly, not one whole body was discovered, only pieces. So how many pieces did they find that they couldn't match to anybody? 
There's a lot. I have okay. this in here, but I think it was like 80 extra DNA. 80 different pieces of DNA yeah. that they found on the farm. Yeah, that they couldn't connect to anybody. But that could also be workers. It can be right. sex workers that were there that went back. It doesn't necessarily mean that there was 80 people that were killed. Right. About half of those were women. Okay. Yeah. To let you know a little bit more about what was collected, over 200,000 DNA samples were taken and 600,000 exhibits were seized. No wonder it took them so long to process this. Yeah. Like we can say 600,000, but if you were to look at what actually 600,000 is, that's a lot. Well, it takes so much time to process one DNA sequence. Yeah, let alone 200,000 DNA samples. That's crazy. Incredible. Lots of personal items were found strewn around the farm as well. Clothing, ID cards, inhalers, rosary beads, prescriptions, and so much more. How would you even begin to sift through all of that? I don't know. That's why it took years and years. And what an overwhelming overtaking, like when you're about to start this. Yeah. Police found a card that belonged to Kara Ellis that had the serenity prayer on it. Robert must have wanted to keep that as they found it on a shelf in the slaughterhouse. Just random places for everything. Yeah. And that's where I mean he wasn't really hiding stuff. So I'm not sure how some of this got missed in the previous searches. I think they were just haphazard searches. They right. had to have been. But when you're looking for those searches, you're looking for big ticket items. You're not like looking for a business card sized item that you can't attribute to anybody else right then. Right. right. But an inhaler and a prescription bottle would have their names right on it. But where were those things found? Were they found in places where the search was completed or were they found like out in the back bush or? No, some were even in his trailer. Oh, yeah. And I don't know when, like he does claim later, like I got sloppy and that's how I got caught. But mm -hmm. I don't imagine that he took that much care the entire time. And a lot of these women weren't reported missing, sometimes for years. And originally they were just looking for guns, right? On the first warrant. Yeah. Yeah. But when they went back, they were looking for something else. But again, where to begin? And you don't have a lot of evidence to say what you're looking for or yeah. why you're looking for something. And so I can see how you would just be like overwhelmed with that task. Yeah. And you have 16 acres mm -hmm. to go through too. Yeah. Among the things being collected, many sex toys and sex related items were found around the farm. Lots of lubes, toys and condoms. Perhaps the most shocking item in this category that police found was a 22 caliber revolver that had a dildo attached to the end of it over the barrel. What? Yes. Robert claimed he was going to use it as a silencer, but they found one of the victims along with Robert's DNA on it. The gun had one bullet loaded in the revolver, <gasps> but evidence showed that one bullet had been shot from the gun. Through the dildo. Yes. Oh my goodness. So I don't know if he shot her while that was inserted because one bullet had been expended. That is crazy. Uh-huh. And how terrifying to be like, you're going to let me do these things to you or else I'm going to shoot you. Well, and he had handcuffs. I think he yeah. restrained a lot of them. And there was never a full body to even know how each of these women were murdered because they were only finding their pieces. Sometimes just a tiny bone fragment. That is so disturbing. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other stuff they had to piece together by what they found. Other items presented at trial included ammunition, night vision goggles, faux fur handcuffs, pictures of Mona Wilson's remains inside a garbage can, Spanish fly aphrodisiac, which is actually made from beetles, not flies, and is said to aid an orgasm, and a syringe with three millimeters of blue liquid inside. 
What was the liquid? Well, one of Robert's friends said that Robert had told him that a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid (gasps) or the likes, like other fluids too, like antifreeze or things like that. Another friend testified that Robert told him he killed sex workers by handcuffing and strangling them. Robert said that he would then bleed them out, gut them, and feed them to his pigs. I thought, can you imagine being a juror in this case? No, no wonder the judge just wanted to try six. Yeah, because it already took such a long time, this trial, just with the six. Yeah. And I was looking in to see if Canada offers free counseling to juror members. And the only one I could find was Ottawa. And I don't know if I just couldn't find access to that. Maybe some of the other provinces do, but I'm not sure that that was even an option at the time of this trial. Is that a common practice in other countries, do you know? I don't know. But it makes sense that they would need counseling after all this. Right. And in Canada, you usually pay out of pocket for counseling. And I thought you are doing your civic duty by being a jury member. And something like this could be so traumatizing. Mm -hmm. I feel like you would need some type of debriefing counseling. Yeah. Lynn Ellingson finally admitted to police that she had, in fact, seen Robert skinning a woman from a meat hook. A little too late. Yep. Just like the informant had reported years earlier to the police. She said she feared for her life if she told, but she also admitted that she used this incident to blackmail Robert more than once. To get more drugs? Yep, or money. She was his friend, so I guess that's why he didn't kill her and gave in to the blackmail. But I thought, how do you keep associating with Robert after seeing this? Well, how do you live with yourself knowing that you could have prevented a whole bunch of deaths if you had just fessed up to the police about what you saw? Yeah, I think she was just concentrating on getting her next fix. But I cannot even fathom walking into a slaughterhouse, seeing your friend with a woman hung up and skinning her and butchering her. Yeah. And that you would even go back. No. Even if you didn't tell. Why would you put yourself in that position again? Or even the nerve it took of her to blackmail him, knowing what he was capable of? Yeah, no kidding. And if she was that afraid of him, why the heck was she blackmailing him? Exactly. That doesn't make much sense. Yes. But she had said earlier he helped fuel her drug habit, right? So then I call baloney on her saying that she (laughs) is afraid of him. Right. Because you don't blackmail somebody that you're afraid of. Exactly. It's just so wild to me. And I would never want to have to live with that on my conscience. No. One of the worst things about how Robert so carelessly disposed of dozens of women is the fact that he used his pigs to help eat the evidence. He shot most of his victims and then hauled them into a slaughterhouse and just went about his business as per usual. Honestly, I do think that it was just as much about not wasting feed as it was to hide the evidence. Because he was actually quite sloppy. There was evidence all over the farm and his father had taught him from a young age to scrounge the garbage to feed the pigs. So do they know roughly how many he fed to the pigs? I think all of them. All of them. Mm -hmm. He just kept their heads in certain body parts and then the rest all went to the pigs. Some of them, like the one victim, there was only one tiny bone fragment left of her. In the feces. In the feces, yeah. Worse than even that, Robert would then sell meat to everyone. Oh no, I didn't even think about that. I told you we were going to circle back because he was selling his barbecued pork. It was famous barbecued pork from the piggy palace. Meat from the pigs who had eaten these women. All the locals purchased meat from the Picton farm. Oh, no. Robert would also include human parts in the loads of waste he took to the local rendering plant. Things like soap or cosmetics were made from these items and again sold to the locals. 
No way. It is estimated that around 53,000 people could have been affected by the aftermath of all these brutal murders. Are wearing somebody else's DNA, a victim's DNA. In your lipstick or washing it on your body with your soap. I don't even know what the word is, but that is a disturbing thought. It's unfathomable. Gives me chills. Just think if you find a bug in your food when you're out camping. Now I am not going to purchase any <laughs> bath products from those little like Ma and Pa. Well, I don't even think this was Ma and Pa. This was the big major rendering plant in that area. Oh no. Oh. It was put into so many products. And almost everybody around there had had picked and farm pork in some form. And another thing that I didn't put in my notes, but I thought maybe I would just mention, is that there was rumor that he had actually ground up some of these women and mixed it in with the ground pork that he then sold oh. to to the locals. No. Yes. But, okay, you said there are rumors. Was that, were there grinders in the evidence logs? Not that I could find. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hence not being in your notes. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I thought I would at least mention it because that could have happened. We wouldn't put it past him with what a dirtbag he is. Oh, that is a disgusting thought. Yeah. So we know for sure that they were fed the pigs that had feasted on these bodies, on these poor women, but they could have actually eaten their meat directly as well. And he had a lot of flesh and remains in his freezer. So I think if it was too much to feed them at once, because there was some where there was a lot of murders happening even in the same month. Mm -hmm. So I think he just froze it until he needed it. But either way, the pigs ate it. They ate the pigs. What a dirtbag. I was thinking when I was researching this, I'm like, what is the Picton farm like now? Like, is it haunted? Oh, I never even thought about that. Yeah, because all those remains for so long, all in that one spot. I'd be interested to hear if anybody knows. Yeah. During the trial and searches, Robert was housed in a jail in Surrey, B.C. They put him in a cell with an undercover RCMP officer. <laughs> oh, yes. That's what I mean. They redeemed themselves in the second part of this. Robert believed that his cellmate was just another detainee. Again, he's not so smart. Nope. Police were able to obtain recorded conversation between Robert and this officer. I found an almost 200-page transcript of their conversation. This is when police finally hear Robert admitting to killing 49 women. He said he really regretted not being able to murder one more to get his total to 50. <gasps> what a dirtbag. Yeah. What a disgusting dirtbag. That was his only regret that yeah. he didn't get an even 50. He's like, yeah, man, I just wish I had one more. 50 sounds so much better than 49 kind of a thing. Like that's not word for word, but yeah. that's basically what he said. Reading through his conversation, it will make you sick. Robert laughed and said to his cellmate, quote, I'm a legend already. Like he was bragging. He also bragged about never drinking, smoking or taking drugs. He said, quote, I'm just a farm boy. Uh, a psychopathic boy. <laughs> yeah. Memo to Robert Picton. All of the farm boys have officially disowned you. Yeah, really. <laughs> all of the Canadian ones, I'm sure I can speak for them all. The undercover cop complained when they were eating their food. He says to Robert that he bets Robert even fed his pigs better than they were getting fed. Robert responds with a simple quote, I do. That's all he said. And I wrote in brackets, eek! <laughs> that is a skilled undercover cop, how he didn't break. Yeah. He tells his cellmate that he got caught because he had become sloppy at the end. Robert Picton's trial finally came to an end on December 9th, 2007. Robert was not found guilty of the six first-degree murder charges. 
However, the jury did find him guilty on six counts of second degree murder. And I was like, why? What the heck? Yeah. How could he not get convicted of first degree murder for those six women? Especially when they have handcuffs with their DNA on it. Yeah. Blood evidence on there. And he had to drive to downtown East Side and bring them back and then murder them there. And then he has glued the one door to his trailer shut. So that's confining them. Yeah. And then he's butchering them after and then goes and does it again. So how is that not premeditated? Yeah. Your answer is as good as mine. I honestly do not understand why that got changed. Did you find the judge's decision in the ruling? Well, there's some appeals. Okay. And I'll tell you what the judge decides. Robert was sentenced to the maximum that he could be for second degree murder which at the time was life imprisonment in a federal penitentiary with no possibility of parole for 25 years. This makes him eligible for parole in 2032. This is only 10 years from now. If he lives that long, he will be 83 years old when he could go up for parole. And I can say with confidence, I believe, that he won't get paroled, but stranger things have happened. Yeah, there's no parole board that's going to grant him parole. I hope not. At the sentencing hearing, family members of the victims were given five minutes each to give impact statements. Some were so upset their statements had to be read for them. Eighteen in total were given. It is reported that this trial was beyond emotional for all involved. Many broke down and cried throughout its proceedings. When sentenced, Judge Williams told Robert, quote, Nothing I can say adequately express the revulsion the community feels at the killings. After this long, excruciating trial, the British Columbia Crown kept the option open to try Robert for the other 20 victims at a later date. However, prosecutors announced on August 4th, 2010, that they would not be pursuing these charges any longer. Hmm. I always have mixed feelings about that. I do, too. Their reasoning was that if convicted, Robert's sentence would not change. He already had the maximum. Mm -hmm. Some family members of those 20 victims were outraged not to get the justice they wanted. But then others said that they were relieved and didn't want to experience another long and difficult trial. Yeah, it's such a mixed bag of emotions for it. It is. If it's not going to extend it, I don't know if I'd want to be put through that. No, and especially with the new laws in Canada that were just passed that you can't add probationary periods together anymore. Yeah. Like, so if they serve two life sentences that probation is only after 25 years it's not after 50 years right or in his case it should have been 25 years times six yeah yeah, 150 years yeah yeah it's wild I am not happy with that change in the law to be honest the children of the victims however filed a civil lawsuit against the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP and the Crown for failing to protect the victims Remember, police were slow in responding to the missing women from the downtown east side. And what was the result of that lawsuit? Well, in March of 2014, each child of a victim was given $50,000, but without admission of liability. Oh, I was going to say, that is opens up for huge liability in other cases. No, no admission of liability, but we'll give you $50,000. Unfortunately, I believe this would have been just given to the 26 murders Robert was formally charged with and not all 49 of his victims' families. Hmm. Well, because you said they couldn't even identify some of them. Yeah. Wow. That opens up a huge precedence, though. It really does. I am shocked that they actually paid anything out. It's kind of like a settlement. 
when it comes down to it, the police messed up this mm-hmm. case. There was a lot of things that they did or did not do that shouldn't have happened. But do you think they actually did it willingly and unlawfully that they didn't take it seriously enough? Like I can understand your point of view from a family member. It would be awful thinking about their death being preventable if somebody had taken the investigation more seriously. But I just don't know how you hold the police liable for that. I don't know. I don't even want to say this. But if one of my daughters had been one of his victims... And I found out earlier that they had his evidence for seven years in an attempted murder and didn't check it. If they had people calling saying, I've seen a dead woman hanging in his slaughterhouse. A worker there saying, all these women that are going missing, I've seen them here at the farm. Mm -hmm. You know, all these different things that kept happening and the police wouldn't even fund an investigation. Right. But it sounds like they couldn't because those things were hearsay. Like they followed up with that person, but then the girl wouldn't admit to seeing it. Right. Right. But there was the one officer who wanted to open up an investigation and they Mm -hmm. would not give him the funds. Yeah. And we're not talking one or two women that were murdered. No. At least 49, possibly more. Mm -hmm. Over 60 went missing at that time. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it opens up a huge precedence if you can sue the police and have liability for them missing evidence. Right. Because there's always going to be mistakes like that made. Unfortunately, it's really, really awful, but they're human just like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Right. But I feel where the difference is, if 49 women from a prominent neighborhood had gone missing, white women in a prominent neighborhood, would the police have ignored All of those missing persons reports, people calling in and saying, this guy down the street, I saw him butchering a woman in his basement. Would Mm -hmm. they have ignored that or would they have, they didn't even put him under surveillance. Yeah, they should have put him under surveillance. Yeah, I don't feel honestly that the sex workers, primarily indigenous sex workers in downtown east side were treated the same as if they were affluent women in a different area. I totally agree with you on that case. I just don't know how you prove that in a lawsuit. No. And so I totally get it. And what they did was wrong. But the precedence that it sets is huge. It does. Even though it's without liability, they are saying, yeah, you guys deserve this. Yeah, exactly. We did mess up. Yeah. And they did. A payment admits fault. Right. Even if it's not officially claiming Mm -hmm. that fault. It's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. And that's where I said, I feel like they dropped the ball the whole first part of it. And then the investigation they did really well. That's crazy. And maybe I'm coming at it from a a medical standpoint where you have to be able to admit fault and to make changes without fear of repercussion of always being sued or else nobody's going to come forward. You'll just always hide your mistakes or you'll get people that don't want to do the job anyway because you're always going to be found at fault because sometimes it's just human error. Yeah, that I totally get. Yeah. But all I'm saying If it was a woman CEO of a company who he was being charged with that attempted murder. Yes. Would they have tested his clothing? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because it was a sex trade worker who was a drug addict, Mm -hmm. was high at the time. From the downtown east side, they left that evidence in a locker for seven years and didn't bother. Yeah. There is a victimology that they didn't take seriously. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is not the first time we've heard of this happening in Canada at all. all. So it's a problem. Mm Mm-hmm. In 2010, the B.C. province held an inquiry to examine what happened in the Picton Farm case, particularly how it was handled by authorities. And so an inquiry to me makes so much more sense than a lawsuit. Yeah. Because an inquiry you're going to bring about change from. A lawsuit, you're just paying out money. Yep, I agree. 
the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry issued a final report that was titled Forsaken. The inquiry said there were, quote, blatant failures by police, including inept criminal investigative work compounded by police and societal pressures against sex trade workers and indigenous women. These failures had led to, quote, tragedy of epic proportions. Mm -hmm. The inquiry issued 63 recommendations to encourage more effective, less fragmented police cooperation. It also called for adequate funding for emergency shelters for sex trade workers. This is also where they had suggested the compensation for the victim's children. Thankfully, some changes did happen as a result of this report. The missing persons unit was made a regular part of the police department. Investigations must start right away without delay. Because mm-hmm. some were being reported missing and they didn't even bother looking. And there were some logistical changes to how family members are informed of and advised about cases like this one. A case file is now also to be left open until the missing person is found. Oh, and that would be a huge difference yep. in practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because with some of these women, some of them didn't even get a case file opened. Mm-hmm. And then some didn't even get investigated and then closed. Yeah, that's sad. There were some appeals on this case. On January 7th, 2008, the Attorney General filed an appeal in the British Columbia Court of Appeal against Robert's acquittals on the first degree murder charges. He's like, what the heck? Why is the second degree? Yeah. The next year, almost exactly a year later, January 9th, 2008, Robert's lawyers filed a notice of appeal in the same appeal court seeking a new trial on six counts of second degree murder. So let's just do it all over again, starting with a lesser charge. And I thought, how gross would it feel to be part of Robert's defense team? Can you even imagine having to defend him? Well, and what are they actually hoping to accomplish? I don't know, maybe hoping he'd get an even lesser charge. Like it worked the first time, first degree to second degree. I don't know what their reasoning was, but they didn't want him being accused of first degree murder. Hmm. On July 30th, 2010, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld Robert's conviction. It was to stay as it was. It was a unanimous vote not to allow him a retrial. And due to time, I've already talked your ear off. That is your very brief overview of the appeals proceedings. But of course, there's more to it. But that was your basic gist of what they were each wanting. The Supreme Court was like, no, we're leaving it how it is. Well, and thank goodness they didn't allow another retrial because that would be that many more people exposed to the horrific details of that case. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't think the prosecutors wanted to go through that again. I really don't think a judge wanted to sit and listen to that again. And then it took them a whole year just to decide on what evidence to include Mm -hmm. and juries just be a waste of time and money and put people through more trauma. And so were they saying that the retrial, they would fight some of the evidence that was admitted in the other one? Or it was strictly because they were changing the charge? They wanted to change the charge. So the prosecution wanted to change the conviction back to Mm -hmm. first degree. The defense wanted to change the original charge to Mm -hmm. second degree. But I think the Supreme Court made the right decision and said, no, we're done with this. It's done. This is how it's staying. Robert spent most of his incarceration at Kent Institution in Agassiz, B.C., a maximum security federal penitentiary. In 2018, he was transferred to the Port Cartier Maximum Security Prison in Quebec, 600 kilometers from Quebec City. Why all the way to Quebec? The reason the families were told that he was being transferred was for his protection and so he could have access to better programs. 
One of the cases I'm researching right now, this guy, he tries to deal so that he gets good stuff like Robert Picton. Ugh. It should not be allowed. No. As far as I'm concerned, you do that to 49 women. We don't care how protected you are. Protected or what kind of programs you have access to. Right. Sit in your cell and rot. Yeah. As you can imagine, families were upset. Marnie Frey's aunt said, quote, it is emotional. You think you've put it behind you, but then you get this phone call. Because they called the family mm-hmm. members to tell them. And are you ready to be even more appalled? In 2016, Robert was able to smuggle out of prison a transcript of his autobiography that he allegedly wrote. No. The book was titled Picton in His Own Words. Was it published? It was. It was published and sold on Amazon. I believe it is no longer available to order. I couldn't find it anywhere and I wouldn't have bought it anyways because it shouldn't be available to purchase. No. Amazon took it off because the public was outraged. Because Robert was being closely monitored, he smuggled the manuscript out via another inmate. That inmate sent it to a friend named Michael Childress, who published the book as himself as the author, but it was written by Robert. Wow. CTV said the book references biblical passages, is full of spelling mistakes, and has transcripts of his interviews with the police. In the book, Robert claims he is innocent of all the murders and says that the RCMP made him the fall guy for all of the deaths. And so who actually was the murderer? He's not saying. He's like, oh, no, they're just pinning it on a pig farmer. Oh, yeah, right. You don't end up with that much evidence on your property without having... No, it's bizarre to even for him to say that. But to me, this proves that Robert Picton has zero remorse for his actions. He's such a greasy, vile weasel. Yeah. Ugh. Family members of the victims spoke out about the book. Sandra Gagnon's sister said, quote, It really disgusts me knowing that the worst serial killer in history has the nerve to write that book and reopen wounds. Wally Opal, the former BC Attorney General, said to CBC News, quote, I'm thinking here and now of the families who have gone through so much, the victims, the survivors of Picton, and it has to be hurtful for all those people who were afflicted in any way with the victims to hear that Picton has access to this type of publicity. At the time, BC didn't have a law that prohibits a criminal from profiting from their crimes. According to the advocacy group Victims of Violence, there are four provinces that do have legislation preventing this. Those provinces are Alberta, Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Saskatchewan. Hopefully more, if not all, have now followed suit. But that was hard to find information on as well. Mm -hmm. And it should be across Canada. Yeah. We talk about this lots. Another publication you might hear about are the Picton Letters. Thomas Laudemy lived in California and said he received three letters from Robert Picton. They had become pen pals. Thomas was catfishing Robert into thinking he was a woman who was down on her luck. Thomas was an aspiring journalist and published the letters, claiming that he did so to help the public gain insight into Robert Picton. In these letters, Robert said he was put on earth to rid the world of its evil ways and that those who are immoral and impure will suffer the anger of God. And I was like, um, that's you, Robert. Yeah. You're the immoral and impure on this earth. To my knowledge, these letters were never officially verified, but seem possible. And was he overly religious? It does sound like he does refer to the Bible and different things like that. And he had kept that serenity prayer. So I'm not sure. As you can imagine, this case did affect the media. There have been multiple movies, documentaries, and books made about this case. 
Again, I want to recommend the book On the Farm by Stevie Cameron. She definitely goes into more detail about the victims and the missing women of Vancouver's downtown east side. She's an investigative journalist. She spoke with a lot of the people involved in the case, so she delivers the details. She also released a smaller publication about Robert. I'm going to end with a quote from Stevie about her book, but I feel like it wraps up the case nicely. When interviewed, she said, quote, I decided to tell the story of every single woman on the official victims list because Picton admitted to killing 49, but was convicted of killing only six. I heard the testimony on the other cases, and I thought the lives of these women mattered. I'd met their families, their friends, their children. People loved these women. And that is the truly horrific, utterly evil, and disturbing case of a man who viciously and callously murdered, butchered, and fed at least 49 women to his pigs. The shockingly slimy, pathetic excuse for a human, Canada's worst serial killer, Robert Picton. Dirtbag extraordinaire. Happy Canada Day. Man, when Canadians murder, they go big. Yeah, when they do it, they do a doozy of a job. Christy, that was a huge case. (laughs) That was ginormous. And I couldn't even put it all in there. I would have loved to talk about as many of the women as I could have more in detail and talked more about the trial and more about the evidence and the proceedings and what he did. But like I said, it would be an entire series if I did that. It's just fascinating. And like with this case, I'm grateful that the inquiry helped make some changes. Because yes, yes, the police messed up. It happened. But if we can learn from it and grow from it, then it's not a complete loss. No, totally 100% agree with that. The inquiry was needed. Yeah, it definitely was. To identify areas where there was weakness to improve on so that maybe that doesn't happen to more people. Their mishaps maybe didn't save more women in that moment, but hopefully what they've learned from that case in Canada as a whole Mm -hmm. can help save more victims in the future. Yeah. So now can you see why it took me so long to get ready to do this case? And even just I felt like getting mentally prepared. Like I am really happy to now close this chapter in my life about Robert Picton. And wash your eyeballs. Yep. My brain needs a shower again. (laughs) That's right. It was your brain needing a shower, not washing your eyeballs. Yeah. Wasn't there one that you said I needed to wash my eyeballs after seeing the pictures? Yeah, that was the same one that my brain needed a shower. shower? That was Issei Sagawa. Yes. Yeah, that case still bothers me. (laughs) Because he got off. And because I looked at the photos that were included in his book that he was able to profit from. So crazy. And he was a cannibal and is walking free. Yes. At least Robert is behind bars and hopefully he doesn't even make it to 2032 to get to that parole hearing. But even if he does, there's no way they're letting him out. I would definitely hope not. I feel that way too, but you never say never is what I've learned when we're going through these cases. Yeah, stranger things have happened. And how many murders have we seen get off on good behavior and then go back and do it again? So many of them do that. I couldn't find much information about him in prison, but if they're willing to transfer him to Quebec from British Columbia, just so he's more protected and has better programs there, he must not be misbehaving while he's there. It's true. It always just shocks me that we're taking care of these dirt bags. I know. Because sometimes, like, in a case like this, that just seems like the injustice for everybody else that we're paying to take care of him. Right. And even though, like, 25 years, that's a long time. But if that was my loved one that he had murdered, it would be like this nagging countdown. 25 years. And who knows? Which is wild to me. So wild. Yeah. If you kill 49 women, you shouldn't be allowed back out. 
No, you're not reforming after 49 women, especially when he's still bragging about it. Oh, I wish I would have gotten one more. And then writing a book saying I'm innocent. They were using me as their fall guy. Baloney. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not true. (laughs) Well, I know a case like this is not how you normally would celebrate Canada Day, but we had to celebrate Buried Motive style. With a Canadian dirt bag. (laughs) With one of our biggest Canadian dirt bags. But as for our listeners, we hope that you have a wonderful Canada Day celebration and stay safe out there. See ya. Bye. testing she did that on purpose because i just took a bite of cookie (laughs) it's because i already ate my whole kit kat i'm ready to go (laughs) no one bad canadian pig farmer is enough (laughs) robert quit his job as an 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 apprentice as long as it's not going to put you or as long as it's not going to as long as it's not going to reflect as long as as long as it's not going to reflect badly on you you can't laugh i start saying it right I was going to say, listeners, should we stop our podcast and open a piggy palace? But what if they tell us yes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't really like your podcast. You can quit that. (laughs) Melissa loves me. I do. (laughs) At least someone does. (laughs) At around tender, tender, at around tender, (laughs) tender. He is looking for love. (laughs) That's true. In all the wrong places. I guess that's Tinder, not Tinder. Tinder, Tinder, but hey. I went to like chicken tenders. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's past my bedtime. I know, I'm sorry. Never record again at night. <laughs> it's a good thing we got Slurpees. I know. I'm going to need a Pepsi soon, though. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh, that took a turn. <laughs> I'm still joking on that. <laughs> My jaw is actually getting sore from talking so much. Yeah, that would make me go vegan for sure. <laughs> for sure. Pepsi at 1.16 a.m. I never even heard of this place. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. 
the Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.